This week, as I was um, praying with some people, the Lord just really impressed upon my heart and some of those that we were praying with um, for pe- just to pray for people who have been going through difficult times, financially, work-related stress. And, and as we were praying, we were praying for the church as we have this year gone through that kind of a time as we come to the end of this year here at the end of June. We were praying for that and, and just really felt led to take some time and to pray for our congregation people who are in those positions where financially maybe things are really tight or difficult or you've lost a job or you're worried about losing a job or maybe you know of someone who has or in that situation. And as I was talking about that, the next day I had someone share a story with me, someone from our church. And I said, can I share it? And they said, yeah, but just leave our names anonymous. And I said, okay. And they said, you know, last Friday... I was sitting at the kitchen table with my wife, working through our bills when we came to an insurance premium due for $2,600. We looked at each other, and later I came to find out we were both thinking the same thing. Oh, great. How are we going to pay for this? You know, when you come to those kind of times, you, you, you lose focus. You begin to think, you know, on a Father's Day like this, one of the things I really wanted our hearts to recognize is Jesus at one point says, um, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give his Holy Spirit to those who ask him? They looked at each other and they said, oh, great. It's, you know, oh, God, do you really mean what you say? And over the last couple of years, he writes, the difficult economic times for my employer has led us to be more dependent upon my wife's business to pay the bills than we would have liked. We know and have experienced God's provision in the past, but this bill seemed particularly difficult for us to swallow at this time. My wife loves to go garage sailing to look for household items and great buys. And so the next morning she went out and did some garage sailing. Anybody done that kind of stuff? Well, she... Uh, came home pretty excited about a nice watch she had found. She contacted a friend of ours that knows quite a bit about watches who coordinated the sale for the watch for us. Not so coincidentally, the amount that he sold the watch for was $2,600. They had paid very little. And he writes, our God truly is Jehovah Jireh, which means our provider. We're going to sing a song in a minute that talks about the mountains trembling at God's at work doing things underneath that we don't see. And sometimes if we're just quiet enough, our our spirits can just feel the trembling. At one point in Isaiah, God says to Isaiah, I will take your right hand and I will open doors so that gates will not be shut. I want us to pray and ask God to open those doors. Father, I pray that you would release faith within our people, that God, they would allow for you to begin to give them a sense of this truth, no matter how you provide or in the way that you do, that you are a good and loving Father, and that we might even feel your heartbeat and feel the trembling of your spirit in the realm of the spirit to move mountains that we fear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, appreciate how God is uh, working in the lives of those who lead us in worship. And last week we had the opportunity for Mark, who 
It's just kind of neat that they've been in the Word of God and God is birthing songs in their heart. That happens as you listen and pray. And it doesn't happen for me. It doesn't birth songs out of me. But for those whom God has gifted, isn't that a neat thing, how God works? Well, happy Father's Day. I want to just welcome those of you who are fathers and, and everyone who has had a father. It's all of you. Um, you know, I, I live with, uh, with three women. I have my wife and my two daughters. And it, Father's Day is kind of a cool thing. You know, when you have three women in the house. I, I actually started my Father's Day celebration on Friday, and they had arranged for me to get a massage. Pretty cool, huh? Anyway, okay, I'll stop bragging and just say I'm looking forward to the rest of the day. And uh, welcome, all of you. There is an article um, by Jacob Weisberg in Newsweek, written back in April. He says, what, are we, what else are we wrong about, is the title of his uh, kind of editorial under the big idea. He writes, a lot of premises have turned out to be wrong lately. I'm not talking about evanescent bits of conventional wisdom, but about overarching assumptions that were widely shared across the political spectrum. And then he, he, he lists some of these. For instance, before 1989, virtually all Sovietologists agreed the USSR was highly stable. Another assumption, he says, before 2001, a few Middle East scholars worried that America was vulnerable to a major terrorist attack. Before 2003, neocon hawks and French lefties agreed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Before 2008, few economists doubted the fundamental soundness of the U.S. financial system. And then he makes this point. He says, so at a moment when everything we once assumed is suddenly up for discussion, it's worth asking, what other big stuff could we be wrong about? Think about it for a second. Might there be some other things that we thought due to conventional wisdom and and what we have assumed, maybe through our family of origin, that we have had assumptions made there or through some of the training we've had in our own churches or in, in business or other places. Well, he says, Weisberg lists a number of potential assumptions and states where received wisdom may be entirely correct. Do some of these issues merit a stronger dose of skeptical analysis? Should we actually look at these assumptions? And then he, he lists some and, and makes comments after. And I'll just list a heading. For one of them is nuclear proliferation is bad. Climate change will be catastrophic. Maybe another assumption, China is stable. Or home ownership is better for us. Stocks outperform bonds in the long run. And what many people are wondering still, can Detroit compete? Those are some assumptions, and he makes some kind of statements after each one, and he challenges those assumptions. But here's what he finally states. It really bothers me a little bit. A potential errant assumption, he says, the Cubs will never again win the World Series. Uh, being a Cubs fan, uh, I have to tell you, and he makes a snide remark after it. He goes, oh, never mind. Like, that's never going to happen. And you Twins fans who think that you took the Cubs two out of three in Wrigley Field, you know, you just wait. Anyway, 
At times, even though our forecasts appear on target and our information seems really accurate, we're humbled, aren't we, when we miss the mark, when we have maybe bet on something that we have believed that we were wrong about. And we're forced to wonder, what else are we wrong about? Think how humbling it was for those in the Old Testament, those Jews in Isaiah's day, when God makes these statements through Isaiah. He says to them, the Lord says, you look, but you don't see. You listen, but you can't hear. Your worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, I will astound you and wonder upon wonder will send you away and I will turn things upside down. I will mess with your assumptions. I came across that this week in my own quiet time as I was reading through Romans and it makes an allusion back to Isaiah. And I was just amazed that already way back then God was saying, I'm going to mess with some of your assumptions. Think how humbling this was for the Jews, the churchgoers in Jesus' day, when Jesus stood before a whole group of them and he said to these good religious Jews, you have to repent. The literal word means this. the, The word in the Greek means to think again. Consider your assumptions is what Jesus could say. Review the strategies that you have based your life upon. Because God's going to turn things upside down. Or think how humbling it was for the Apostle Paul who was out persecuting the followers of Jesus and this good, religious, um, faithful, church-going believer of the God of the Old Testament. And he's on his way. He's on the Damascus Road. And he's, and he's in a sense, blinded by light. And he's stopped in his tracks. And God says to him through Jesus, Jesus actually says to him, Paul, stop it. What you're doing is not what your heart really longs for. You've got to stop persecuting my people. I am going to mess with your assumptions. And think how humbling it was for those Jews who were gathering in the local synagogues throughout Galatia when Paul, Luke, and Barnabas made their way from a church called Antioch, bringing a message about the freedom, the freedom that comes from following Jesus Christ and and, and trusting in Him and, and allowing this forgiveness and love and grace of God to penetrate and move through your heart to, through you and faith, allow the only thing that counts is this love expressing itself through you. This kind of message as he goes to these synagogues. Because these synagogues were made up of Jews who had been dispersed from Israel. They had actually gone to these places as a result of persecution, as a result of of things that were happening in their homeland. So when they got there, they would do what anyone would do who was from another country. They would find the other Jews and they began to meet in what is called synagogues, churches like this. And as they were meeting in these, these homes of people, Paul, Luke, and Barnabas came along and they told them this message and they messed with their assumptions. The conventional wisdom of how they read God's word. And could it be that we carry deep-seated, overarching assumptions based on our conventional wisdom of family upbringing or religious training or our limited experience that the Holy Spirit may be in your life, if you pay attention, may be seeking to, to turn upside down. In such a way... That as you begin to allow him to work and to move through you and you pay attention to what he's doing, he will begin to show up in your life in ways that you would go, wow, I didn't know. I didn't realize. 
But you know what? We so often fight that, don't we? Well, here's what's going on in Galatians, this letter that we've been looking at. And, and Paul, in chapter 5, now after, after a couple chapters, 3 and 4, he has just spent time on the same thing over and over again. He says it as many ways as he can. He says, grace sets you free to love God and others from your heart. But the common assumption in Paul's day, as it is often today as well, is that if you tell people that God loves them and their relationship is based on faith in his grace to provide, even with regard to your relationship with him from now and forever into heaven, if it's based on what he has done and what he will do and all that he is about, if in some way he takes away this sense that your goodness and what you do in your goodness is what causes him to approve you and accept you and allows for you to move in relationships because of your performance, would you take away the need to perform, you're going to have problems, right? The common assumption that was in that day, the conventional wisdom was that God saves good people. The people God is really thrilled about are the people who are, who are seeking to perform good things and by their good acts, they're getting into right relationship with God. And Jesus comes along and says, wrong. Paul comes along in these synagogues and says, no. See, they're all worried that about, as it says in the scripture, that if you are free to live in the forgiveness and love of God, then you're just going to go ahead if you're not, in a sense, performing for God, you're going to go ahead and indulge and do everything negative, all the things that your heart desires. There is no constraint any longer, correct? And Jesus says, no, he blows a hole a mile wide in this assumption of the good religious people of his day. When he said to them, he looked at him and he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. God saves, delivers, draws near to broken, messed up, humbled people who are seeking with all their heart due to their failure that a God would be loving and merciful. Because God always opposes the proud, as it says in Scripture, and to this day still stands only to give grace to those who are humble in heart. So Paul comes to the conclusion at this chapter in verse 5 of chapter 5, verses 1, uh, 13 through 26. So I get it, 5, 13 through 26. And he says the common assumption that grace leads to anarchy, living as you please, license, doing what you want, take away the law, and people have no motivation to do good. This is what Paul says. Listen to his words in verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by others. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there's no law. You can't write a law for every situation that will tell you how to act for that specific situation. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become then conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Paul actually moves very logically from one sense of thought to another sense of thought to a final one, which I want to share with you. Verses 13 through verse 15, he basically is saying grace sets us free to follow a higher standard, to follow a greater law, the law of love. And in verses 16 through verse 18, he says that higher standard of love can only be met by the Spirit of God. Not going to happen with your flesh. You need a power greater than yourself. And then he says the Spirit produces spiritual fruit. The last verse is 19 through 26. And I'm not going to go in detail through verses 19 and 26, specifically the acts of the flesh. You can look those up and I'll empower you to use the resources around to find each of those words. But I want to give you just the flow of thought this morning of what Paul is doing. I kind of gave you that flow. You remember, if you ever fly in an airplane, you once in a while get a pilot who will stop before you go and say, well, today's route, we're going to go south this direction. You'll be passing over the, you know, Appalachians. And, and then he gives you the whole thing. Well, that's kind of what I just did. OK, that's our route. Grace leads to love. Love leads to the Spirit. Spirit leads to a Spirit-produced life. Grace sets us free to follow a higher standard, is what he says. You, you, my brothers, were called to be free. You weren't called to be slaves. So don't use your freedom just to indulge the flesh. Rather, instead, serve one another in love. Because this entire law of love can be summed up he doesn't even use both laws. He says, if you begin to learn, you truly love your brother. It proves that you love God. But if you're biting and devouring and, and going after one another, you'll just destroy each other. That's a life of the flesh. The flesh always lives at a substandard. A standard that is less than what God demands. That's what Paul has been saying throughout this whole passage. God gave the law of Moses not to be lived after and to follow as a way of being in relationship with God, not as a way of getting his acceptance and approval. Your performance doesn't bring you into his presence. That's what he's been saying. They are basically the bare minimums when you think of the law, the Old Testament Ten Commands, of getting along in a, in a culture. That's why he gave them to that group of people. Before they came to the land, he says, you know what, I'm going to give you these laws just so that you can live civilly with one another. Things like don't steal. Don't take another person's husband or wife. These are good ideas. Don't kill. All these things add up to relationships that will at least be civil together. But they may not. And will not deal with the things of the heart. So when I say don't commit adultery, he says that won't touch the heart. So Jesus comes along later and says, if you're lusting like crazy in your heart, you're doing it. And he says, don't kill. But it doesn't mean that as long as the killing stays in your heart, then you can kill all you want or hate all you want. The flesh trying to gain God's approval in our strength, trying to perform to receive acceptance 
always will lead to what I call a substandard. It will always lead to less than the standard of the love of God, which God through Christ wants us to live out. And, and it just, it's, it's the way it's done. God gives us grace so that we can move, we can actually love from our hearts and not by a rule book. He didn't take away the law so we could live how we want, but he took it away so that we could be free to, in, to step into his love and experience his love and express that love. Another way to put it is this. The flesh keeps lowering the bar until we clear it. Think about it for a second. If we, if we in some way need to measure up to certain standards so that God accepts and approves us, what we will begin to do is also look for people who will approve us because it's hard in some ways to get this sense of approval from God. So we'll look at other people who are righteous or spiritual to give us approval. And often what happens is because we don't believe we can and and we know that we can't live up to that standard, we'll lower that standard. We'll do things and we'll agree upon things that that cause us to look spiritual or we think leads to a sense of his approval. And and it always results in somehow uh, rule keeping results in measuring our spirituality by things that are external rather than love giving, which is always something that comes internally out of the heart, which can only come from God. Let me just give you an example of what that would be like in, in, in just some areas of life today. Just think in the area of aviation. If you're taking this whole area of, of the airline industry, just think if they were to, they were caught up in thinking about the fact that we need, they need to feel good about themselves and they need an approval rating that, that says you're okay. But they know that when they fail, they just can't handle the shame and the guilt and, and so they, they need some kind of standard that people will say will be good. So they reason together that 75% is a good standard. Three out of four planes that fly and take off actually land. Think about it. They're, they're worried. They need to somehow have some external marker that makes them feel good about themselves, that in some way gives them a sense of approval, because otherwise the shame and guilt of not making it right is just too much. How many would buy that? We would go, that's crazy. But that's what happens when we begin to make our relationship with God about us. And about what we think we need. And that will happen every time you, you live according to the law. You'll, you'll seek to move in that direction and you will create standards that are less than. So we remove the shame and the failures and lower the bar. But God says, no, it's not about that. I need for you as my people to love in such a way that it is a zero standard. You know, it is it is a zero tolerance, 100 percent every time. And so when you move into that, you realize you can't do it. And when you come to that place and you realize I can't love other people like that, I can't love my spouse like that. I can't love my kids like that. I'm not able to honor my parents the way that I'd like to. I can't live that kind of life with the people that I work with. So you have a choice. You either kind of lower the standard and agree with a lot of people, but that's an okay standard, and now you feel spiritual and good about yourself. Or you come to a place and you say, God, more than anything else in this life, I realize I can't do 100%, and as a result of that 100%, I need you. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need you to be sufficient. And so he basically comes and says, you know what? That's a wonderful place to be. Because when you come to that place, grace sets you free. It sets you free from trying to 
to somehow meet up the, and to measure up to this standard so that you can now live in this new standard that Jesus himself lived out perfectly. He is the one who fulfilled every holy standard of God and every act of love, never once failing, did it so perfectly that on a cross he said, I will actually die for you so that you don't have to live by that standard to find acceptance, but that now you can live completely in the wonder and amazement of a God who loves you for who you are, has created you to be something that he wants to work through. And then you go, I can't believe that. And now your eyes are no longer on my trying to keep these standards so that I can somehow measure up. And if I can't, because no one can live that way, you're looking at other people to try and approve you so that now you, you've created this substandard. And God says, I, you can't live that way. It will never create the kind of life that you want. It will never create the kind of community we want to develop. The only one that can create the kind of intimacy and love and, and the relationship that he wants for us is one that is a faith that looks to a God alone who can supply, who provides. And when he supplies and provides he is the one who gives you the ability through his strength to love people that you have a hard time loving and and that's what paul's getting at the grace of god never sets you free to just indulge it sets you free from performing so that now you can take your eyes off yourself and look to god alone and do so with a sense of wonder and that wonder as you look at him and you fail doesn't lead you to a sense of, oh, I can just do whatever my flesh desires. I can indulge in anything I want. It leads you, if you have truly understood his love and his forgiveness and the price that he's paid through his son, Jesus, and you begin to understand that when you do things that are hurtful, they actually offend God and they hurt other people. When you come to a recognition of that and you begin to repent and say, God, please forgive me. Please, would you move in my heart? And, and you begin to wonder at the fact that it's about forgiveness. It's not about that you have to somehow, once you blow it, go back here and try again to get into God's good graces. It's an amazing thing because we're not wired this way. Our sinful flesh that in, in some of your NIV says sinful nature, that nature that tends towards sin or towards a self-centered kind of strategy, the survival patterns you learned growing up to get what you want will not get you what you want. And they will not provide the kind of relationships that you hunger for. And so God comes and he says, when you blow it, he goes, I forgive you. And then you do the work where you ask for forgiveness and you get into the right relationship so that you now are living on a whole different level. It's a level of the spirit, not a level of the law. And you move into this place where you live in this. I was talking about this last week. And as I was sharing this, this wonder of God's incredible love and forgiveness that God would choose you, every person here, he chooses you to walk and to love this. And, and when you receive that, you can't help but go, I can't believe he picked me. I'm walking out of church after the first service last week, and a lady kind of um, says hello to me, and, and it's just, you could tell she's moved. And she's got tears, and she's been, and her eyes are, are watering, and she says to me, I can't believe that God picked me. And I'm, I'm thinking she's talking about salvation. And, and she says, I can't believe that, that I would be the one that would receive this. And, I'm, and then she shared with me. She shared with me the ministry of Hammers of Hope, of, of people within this body who have actually gone to people who are in positions where they don't have the resources to care for their home or they don't have the abilities or they don't have the, the um, things that are needed. 
And, and we've had the opportunity from time to time to hear about that and, and actually pick some people to help. And many of you have been in that ministry and have done that. And then this, this lady writes these words. I didn't realize the next morning I find out she's written these words on our prayer card. She says, they came to my home and they fixed more things than I even asked for. I was hoping for a garage door and for it to be painted. And still, almost two months later, I find more things that were fixed. Exclamation. Several times I wonder why I was picked. I know it was God's will. Here's what grace, here's what feeling love, that God would pick you, that he would give you forgiveness to walk in day in and day out. That this day today, if you feel under the shame and guilt of your own sin, you have the opportunity to invite Jesus into your heart. You have the opportunity to say, God, forgive me for all that I've ever done. And that forgiveness not only takes place of what you've done, it takes place of your present and your future. You have the opportunity to say, Jesus, come into my life. And it amazes me that here is this person, as they say, I can't believe, I still wonder why I was picked. That's what happens when you experience this. And you don't then go, I just want to indulge my flesh and just do things to hurt people. And you get out of the, I'm going to perform like a slave. So God, somehow as you're on this thing, you're running to try and get his approval. You move into a place where you live in the love and the forgiveness and in the joy and the presence of God. Or you can begin to start saying, I can't believe you picked me, God. I can't wait to pick someone else to love. And so she writes, I just hope, I only hope I can pay it forward somehow. And I hope the group reads my thank you. So I kind of done that. You heard her thank you. There are all kinds of people you yourselves can say to other people who have touched you because of God's love through them because they've been set free by grace. You know what it means to be touched by someone who you deserve not to be treated well. You deserve other things and then they come along and they touch you. And by the power of God, you begin to understand, I can't believe this love and forgiveness. Because love leads to love. And as Paul says just a few verses earlier in chapter 5 of verse 6, he says, catch this, the only thing that counts. Don't dismiss this. This may, this may actually disrupt some of your common assumptions. Because Paul says this not just once, but also he says it in 1 Corinthians 13. You hear it at every wedding. Jesus says it, the last thing he says as well to his disciples, I give you a new command. John said it so often to the churches in the New Testament that they finally said to him, John, why don't you talk about something else? And he would say, I will when you get it. It's a story out of tradition. He says the only thing that counts is faith in this incredibly loving, wonder-filled God expressing himself through me in love. That transforms my life and the lives of all that it comes to. Because grace sets us free to reach for an impossible standard because it's not about me. The focus is on God. And grateful for His love, we want to express love. And never, ever does it lead to a cavalier approach to living that feels free to indulge our flesh. That's what Paul is saying. And he says, if you keep in your flesh, biting and devouring each other, you're going to destroy one another. Because when you have wants that you want to put in place of other people... Those kind of wants that you say, I'm just going to get my want met the way I want it. That's flesh. 
rather than when you step back and say, God, will you provide? Will you do this work? I will set my wants here, believing that you are a God who is good. You're a father who loves me and you will provide for this need. I have two dogs, a dog named Lila. It's part um, golden retriever and German short hair, and it looks just like a black lab. The older dog. And I have a dog named Tessa, golden retriever, two years old. And two, that's just an upset. Anyway, I yesterday, the other day, gave them these two little bones, these kind of rawhide bones. I gave them to my dogs. The next moment, I see the older dog walking around with two bones shoved in its mouth, holding its head up like this, and the other dog wildly trying to get him. And every time, the dog just made this kind of growl I don't ever hear. And then this kind of like barking, biting noise, almost losing the bones out of its mouth. Because, sadly, Tessa, the other dog without the bone, didn't have enough confidence and trust that I would be there to get that other bone back. That I would provide for her want and need. In a sense, he's using these very same words. We live like dogs. Fighting and devouring each other for what we want. In our marriages, where we work, in our churches, we want it so badly that we don't trust that God, through His Holy Spirit, can provide for what we want. And it may be that other person runs around with the two bones, but God will still care for you. And so that's why he moves on to the next point where he says, this high standard of love, which is so impossible, you guys, by your strength, will never be able to meet it. Whether it's performing for God or it's providing for yourself, it's not your responsibility But it only comes when you recognize that you can't do it. So the higher standard of love, which is impossible for you to do in your own strength, can only be met by the Spirit. So he makes a statement. He says very clearly, immediately following the biting and devouring, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because the reality is, Paul goes on to say, that they live in opposite directions. Indulging, performing, move differently because they're of your nature. Flesh means to do what comes naturally, to provide for that want. Where living by the Spirit means I will step back, I will allow God to move in this situation. I will listen and then walk by it. And the word live by the Spirit is not optional. It, in, the, in the Greek, it is a command. If you have been touched by the Spirit of God, and He has in some way provided for that deepest want of needing to be loved by Him, being forgiven for your sin. Then he says, now walk this out, not just in this area, but in every area of your life. Begin to learn, to live. The command is to walk in the Spirit, step by step. Because the acts of the sinful nature, or the flesh, those things that come natural, they're immediate. That's his point. They happen like that. You cannot live in the flesh and walk in the spirit at the same time. It is an impossibility. They are in conflict with each other. They are opposed to each other. They will never, ever meet. He has been making that point before. And he says, here's how you got to walk. The flesh is simply just doing what's natural. It's living by the strategies of survival that we've learned and we've adopted. And they are so deep and they are so difficult to understand. It actually takes the Holy Spirit of God to do it. It takes the Holy Spirit of God as you begin to walk with Him and as you begin to live out this life when you react. Because we react, we get into places of fear, or we find ourselves in places of shame. And when we are either, it reminds us of something in our past or, or in, in our own present, we then react and then a lot of times we may go, oh, I can't believe I just blew it, right? Don't you, you feel that? Where you, you keep doing, and that's God's process 
of not causing us to go, oh, I blew it and beating yourself up and in shame. And then you, you feel and you carry that shame and guilt and you do that for a while and you pray to God and they start, you know, you think, oh, eventually now you're okay. Baloney. God wants you to step immediately into his grace, to live by the spirit, to receive his forgiveness, to say, thank you, God, for the fact that even this you've forgiven me. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray before the father in heaven and say, father, what is this in here inside of me that causes me to react in such a way that I hurt the people that I love? Would you get under that? And I want to tell you, when he does that, it really is painful. In order to produce the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that kind of life is not fun. Listen to what he says. If you just listen, Paul goes on and he says, these fruits are evident against such things. There's no law. You can't write a law that produces this kind of stuff in your life. You can't write a law that will meet all the different needs that you're going to come across in life. It's got to be love. And when love gets pushed it comes out as love but what you'll find is that when flesh gets pushed and something deep within us that has been rooted in us through shame and guilt and fear and all these other things ways we want to live we get pushed it comes out with hurt then you stop and you say god but i want love and how do you do that he says this those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the sinful nature of the flesh its passions and desires you bring them back to the lord and you begin to say god i want you more in me than anything else would you begin to root this out And if you do that, it's painful because it's a crucifying experience. It is a putting to death the flesh. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was painful. And it was a long experience for him. If you want to live according to this high standard of of love, and you realize you can't do it, then you have to call upon the Spirit of God because only the Spirit of God can do it. And if you're in that place today, Anybody having trouble loving someone? Anybody having trouble believing that God's going to provide for you? Anybody having difficulty with patterns of behavior that come out either in anger or come out of needs to control or any of those things? And I've got, I hope, almost everybody here right now. What Jesus says is great. Because this way of love cannot happen through your own strength. It happens through your brokenness when you come before God once again and you, you say, Spirit of God, you have to do it. Jesus said that by saying this, Blessed are those who are impoverished because for theirs is the kingdom of God. You now in your bankruptcy and poverty, when you look at this person you cannot love well or the situation you need to provide for and you want to act in your own flesh to make it happen. He says when you step back, you recognize that you can't make it happen. And God says, great, blessed are you, happy are you. Because in that humility, in that sense of dependence, you put yourself in a place that the spirit of God can begin to work. Yours is the kingdom, the rule of God. And so those who live this way, he says, you have to crucify that flesh. And that crucifixion is a long process. It was the reason it was so long and painful was it was to, in, in that day and age. It was one of the worst kind of deaths to die. But what I find is interesting is the contrast that Paul is making here. He says the acts of the Spirit are obvious. The idea they're evident. They happen just like that. There's something you can see and they're immediate. But the fruit, think about fruit. How many are farmers here? How many planted gardens? How many when you planted the garden came out the next day and were, you know, maybe a tomato and were looking for a tomato on that plant? It's not going to happen, right? See, the fruit of the Spirit is a process of coming to your own sense of failure, standing again in the forgiveness and grace and love of God, 
Allowing yourself to examine your heart and say, God, I want you more than anything. It's, again, putting that flesh and saying no to the flesh, those passions and desires, and saying, God, now I ask in obedience when you prompt me and you move me forward that I will follow. And I'm not, this is not just passive obedience. I'm also talking about people who are in a situation where you're not really good at creating boundaries for yourself and people overstep those and they hurt you, but you have got in your own flesh a desire to have harmony. And so you don't put up the boundaries. You don't do the tough things to keep people outside them. That's also an, a way of responding in the spirit. He is basically saying those things that go against the grain of who you are. It is your responsibility as you crucify your flesh to recognize that over time, as you walk step by step with the Spirit, the Spirit of God will begin to produce within you fruit. Right? And the point is this. The third thing that he says here is God's Spirit produces spiritual fruit. Or you can say it this way. God's Spirit actually will produce the life of Jesus in you. God's spirit, as you crucify your flesh, as you allow the spirit of God to work into yourself, as you follow his promptings in obedience, he will develop. Another way to say it is the character of Christ in you, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness. Fruits that mature over time through sometimes storms and difficulties. It is another way of saying that God's spirit produces God's love. And allows for this high, zero tolerance, impossible, 100% always standard to be met through him. So I'm going to ask, especially dads as we close, and you think about this whole concept of grace leading to love and love leading to the spirit and the spirit leading to kind of spiritual change in your life. Where do you find yourself lowering the standards? Where do you find yourself a rule keeper? Sometimes I know it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking we're meeting God's standard when we're really just meeting our own. Sometimes it's possible to think that because you're really taking care of your child and you're bringing him to soccer and you're involved and connected in their lives and you spend some time with them at night and you do those kind of things, and yet, if your heart is not in relationship and connected to your wife, are you really, really living up to the standard? Where do you, where do you dumb down the standards? Or maybe, Dad, you, you look at it this way. Hey, my responsibility, I've taken this role in life, and I'm to you know, bring home the bacon. Where do you dumb down the standards? Or maybe you're in a situation today. I'll speak to others as well. Where are you today looking at a bar that is so high that you either feel like giving up because it's so impossible and you want to give in despair? Where God right now is saying to you, great, you're right where I want you. You're right in the place of if you get real that you recognize your own inability, your bankruptcy, and Jesus goes, blessed are you who are in this place that you don't have love for the person that is supposed to be loved outside that God's calling you to. Guess what? You may not do it real well, but if your heart's there, the kingdom, God's power, His rule will begin to assert itself into your spirit. And over time, as you keep moving towards Him and you keep staying in these broken places, God will begin to form something in you you cannot form in yourself. And it's called the grace of God and the life of Jesus. I'm going to ask this to stand as we close.
I'm going to ask as you stand just to really listen to this song the first time through, pray in your heart, and then we'll sing it together.